Heavenly Father, as a brother Israel prayed, we know that your word is perfect and true. We are, uh, we are imperfect people, saved by a perfect God, and I thank you that we have the gift of your perfect word for our sanctification and perseverance. Father, may your word be a gift to us in what it says this morning as we examine uh, these words from that wonderful sermon given by Jesus Christ, our Savior. May we delight in his salvation and walk that road through which he is the gate which leads to you to eternal life. And we thank you for the gift your word is to us on that road. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you are someone that consults your sermon outline, you'll see three points um, leading up to verse 23. But um, as I felt a need in these, these challenging uh, passages to unpack many of the details that we saw here. I, I left our third point for next week. So this week we will be looking at Matthew 7, 13 to 20. In our contemporary age, it is a regular theme that we need to recognize and even celebrate a, a wide spectrum of beliefs and lifestyles. Islam, New Age, Everything from radical hedonism to rational empiricism. You can be a pantheist, a panentheist, an atheist, or a monotheist. These religions and philosophies seem diverse. And Christians have been exhorted by this world that they must see themselves as one opinion among many. Too many to count. Too many to choose from. But throughout this Sermon on the Mount... Jesus has limited the playing field. Throughout the sermon, we're presented with a number of different contrasts, either implicitly or clearly. Jesus has contrasted his high standard of righteousness with the low standard that the scribes and Pharisees have. We've contrasted genuine righteousness with hypocritical motivations for righteousness. You can store up treasure in heaven or treasure on earth. There's slavery to God or to money or mammon. All of these contrasts are not presenting us with a variety of ways. They align to show us that there are just two options. We can love a relationship with God or deny God. We can see Christ as Savior and King or reject Him. We can love Jesus' kingdom or we can love this present world. So Jesus now takes those two options and as we come to these closing sections of the sermon, He puts a choice before us. Let's first look at Matthew seven thirteen and 14. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Our first point this morning is this. The way to life is narrow and hard. The way to destruction is easy and broad. I want to consider the three things that distinguish these two ways Jesus presents us with. First, we see the different ways that we set out on these roads. Next, we see what each road is like, and then we see where these roads end. 
First, where do these two ways begin? Jesus tells us to enter by the narrow gate rather than the wide gate. The entrance to Jesus' kingdom is narrow. If we do not deliberately desire and seek it, we will by default wind up taking the wide gate. The way of this world is wide enough to accommodate many viewpoints. You can be proudly religious. You can be someone who upholds the five pillars of Islam to please your God. You can be someone who performs all the right prayers and honors uh, one of the many gods of Hinduism. You can be brazenly sinful. You can mock God and delight in depravity. Or you can claim to know God and enjoy the subtle hypocritical sinfulness of practicing your righteousness to be rewarded by men. All of these cases are on the same road. The people who delight in their sin and those who are hypocritically righteous both choose the treasures of this world over the treasures in heaven. There is room on the wide way for false religions, atheists, and pleasure addicts. But there is also enough room for soccer moms devoted to the success of their kids and their standing in the community, or hardworking dads who measure themselves against their colleagues by the stuff that they can get for their family, or college students whose hope is in a prestigious career. Even good things can be the idols that drive us to disregard God and choose the wide way of this world. Another reason the gate of this world is so wide is because it allows you to carry through it all the treasures that you want to bring along the way. Whatever you depend on for comfort and joy, whatever you have to have with you, whatever you couldn't do without, you can have it on the wide way of the world. But the gate to Jesus' kingdom is narrow. It is as narrow as one way, as Jesus himself. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The apostles preached, there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. The gospel of Jesus is the only way that God has given to his kingdom. God sent his son to die on a cross in the place of sinners, and then he gloriously raised him from the dead. Everyone who gains entrance to his kingdom will do so by that death and resurrection. There will be no one there who says they have arrived by any way other than the salvation of Jesus Christ. No one there will call him king, who does not also know him as their savior, as the one who took their punishment so that they could be justified by God. No one will have eternal life without praising Jesus as the risen Lord through whom they have that life. And no one will enter God's kingdom who did not place their trust in Jesus and the gospel. That is the only way to enter by this narrow gate. The way is also narrow because it does not allow us to bring through whatever baggage we would choose to have. Remember, we cannot serve both God and money. Our idols will not come with us into God's kingdom. And so we cannot bring them along with us as we walk on the road to that kingdom. 
We cannot enjoy these things as necessary as idols while we wait for that inheritance. So this is why the way is narrow and it is why it is hard to find. It's not just the singularity of the gospel that makes it difficult to see the way to Jesus' kingdom. It is that so many people are blind to see it because they would never surrender the idols that they should surrender to take that road. They refuse to see the way of life. Atheists obscure the existence of God that is clear even in nature. New Age followers will seek out whatever spiritual view is most comforting or empowering to them rather than most true. Many people just try and ignore eternal questions and focus on what they want or need today. These differing viewpoints will all close their eyes to the narrow gate because they all cannot imagine giving up their treasures and idols. So they keep on the wide way of the world. If anyone truly seeks for Jesus' kingdom, they will find it. He has told us, seek and you will find, knock and it will be opened to you. To anyone who calls out to Jesus and desires to enter through the gate that is himself and his gospel, God gladly opens the door, receives them as a son or daughter and welcomes them on that road to his kingdom. So that is how we enter by these two ways. Next, Jesus tells us that the roads along these ways are different. The road to Jesus' kingdom is hard. The way of the world is easy. What makes them hard or easy? Is Jesus' way hard because the gospel fails to live up to our expectations? Because it is clearly less delightful than the sin that this world is offering? Of course not. Of course not. Jesus has already said that loving this world's treasures fills us with anxiety. And that when we trust in our good heavenly father, we can be free of that anxiety. He's already told us that we can have true godly righteousness, that we can pursue that even in this life while other people are mired in self-serving hypocrisy. We can receive good gifts from our heavenly father. What makes the way hard is that the world rejects it and thus rejects those who walk upon it. Those on the wide way of this world follow the devil in tempting and opposing those who choose the narrow way. It's very hard to preach this sermon and not recommend to you John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. That book takes this analogy of the gate and the road and it paints a picture of the Christian life as a journey. Bunyan's Christian meets many characters on his journey that represent the challenges a Christian faces on the road. We meet worldly wise man, the wisdom of the world, and Mr. Legalism, a religion of false righteousness. They both try and prevent Christian from entering the narrow gate at all. His wife and his children and his neighbors beg him not to betray them by choosing this road when they don't want to go with him. Even after he does find the narrow gate, he's distracted and tempted by wanton and the old man who represent lust and our own flesh. He must do battle with Apollyon, with the forces of darkness. He is captured and for a long time is delayed by the giant despair, his own depression. 
He's persecuted at the town of Vanity Fair, the world oppressing the righteous. The temptations and challenges in the Christian life are many. And God's gifts on this road are not promises to remove these challenges. Often God's gifts are given to help us to persevere through them and to work those hard experiences towards a greater good. God allows these hardships to help us leave behind the baggage that doesn't fit on the narrow road. His gifts help expose the folly of the wise way, wide way of the world. His gifts help us to keep our eyes on the end of the hard road. In Bunyan's pilgrimage, Christian also meets faithful and hopeful. He's aided by the scriptural interpreter, by discretion, piety, and charity. The way is hard, but it is full of good gifts. By contrast, the way of this world is easy. It's easy because anytime you come up against hardships, you just change directions and choose a different path along the wide way. If atheism is not working for you, try adding some Buddhism. If your culture doesn't like your view of righteousness, go ahead and change it. If the baggage you are carrying doesn't satisfy you, try new baggage. Or if you're able to, get more baggage. It's a choose-your-own-adventure book of ways to pursue pleasure and satisfaction. Anything but God. Anything but the gospel. You choose more and more we see that this world frames freedom itself as the highest virtue. The freedom to be who you are, to choose what you do, to take pride in it. The world says if you are a slave to anything, delight in your slavery. Rest at ease as you serve your addiction to money, to lust, or just to the comforts of home and family. More and more, what people reject about Christianity is its exclusivism. Increasingly, Christians are facing opposition from the world because they say that there is just one way, that there is a narrow gate, and that people should repent and take this way in Jesus. Repent and take it just as we did. So the one way is hard and the other is easy. Thirdly, Jesus wants us to know where these roads lead. The door to Jesus' road is narrow, and the way is hard, but it is a good way. It's a righteous way. It's the way of delighting in our Father and glorifying Jesus Christ. It's the way of the children of God. And that way ends in being joyfully received into the eternal rest of God's presence in his kingdom. Jesus came to offer us something so much better than the best treasures of this world. He is the way, the truth, and the life. He came to extend to us a place in his eternal kingdom, free from sin and death and suffering and pain and all sinfulness and wickedness. It's a world of living in the sweetness of what we were made for. So when our road is hard, we are meant to keep our eyes on that life. We're like an athlete training. The athlete who trains the hardest receives the crown. Or a farmer toiling 
to receive the great harvest. God's desire is that all who come into his kingdom do not just believe, but persevere in their belief. This is his will for us as a good father. This is how he prepares us along the road for his kingdom. Likewise, the wide and easy way with its freedom to choose any worldview or lifestyle, all of those worldviews and lifestyles will lead to one place, to destruction. The destruction of all that is good and the eternal wrath of hell. If Jesus has not borne God's wrath for us and taken the curse of death on our behalf, we will bear the just punishment to every sin by which we declared we were enemies of God who rejected him and desired to choose our own way. The way of the world is tempting and easy, but its pleasures are hollow and they are fleeting. There are many people who recognize even in this world that their pleasures will not satisfy them. But if we look in Psalm 23, we are reminded that even if we look at the life of people who do not know God and they enjoy all the pleasures of this world all their life, we should not envy them. For they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors like a dream when one awakes. And they awake to the nightmare of what they have chosen. So we have two ways. The narrow gate of the gospel and the wide gate of all the God-rejecting, man-exalting ways of this world. The road past the narrow gate is not promised to be easy. It comes with hard persecutions, sufferings, and challenges which grow our faith and prepare us for the glorious end of the road. By contrast, the way of the world is as easy as you can make it. But the narrow way leads to everlasting life with God by the grace of Jesus Christ. While the wide way ends in wrath and destruction. So Jesus puts a choice to us. Choose the narrow way. It is hard to find, but if we truly seek his kingdom and righteousness, then by God's grace and his grace alone, we find the gate. And we are welcomed on the road to eternal life. With his word as a light to our feet on that road, God ensures that all who are his will walk it faithfully until they are received by him. So after presenting us with that choice, Jesus wants to give us particular cautions and warnings for the sake of our perseverance on the way. We're going to look at the first of those this morning. Chapter 7, verses 15 through 20. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but a diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. We've already seen that the narrowness of the Christian way itself will lead many people to reject it. 
and even persecute those who take it. Of course, they hate this exclusivity because it condemns them. It tells them that they are on the road to death. But they also hate its narrowness because they despise that God would make us choose between him and our worldly desires and pleasures. How dare God say that I have to waste my life pursuing him and his righteousness if I want to get to his kingdom? I should be able to do what I want here and now and then get his approval for eternity. There are many people who might even agree, well, it is important to be good. It's important to be moral. It's good to be righteous. But if I do those things that God wants, he should not wait to reward me in eternity. The promise of his kingdom is not enough to be righteous and endure a hard road. Righteousness should make my road easier. It should have worldly benefits. Jesus has already warned us about these hypocritical, man-centered motivations for righteousness. These desires to enjoy the world while still receiving all the gifts of God will naturally lead many people to seek out teachers who claim to speak for, on God's behalf, but will blur the two roads for them. Someone who says that they are teaching the way to life, but they widen the narrow way. So it can accommodate our dependence on the worldly treasures we want to bring with us. So we can still have what brings us comfort and security. Maybe even make enough room for that sin that we don't want to let go of. That we need too much. They make the way to life easy. Because now they can mold it into whatever you want or need it to be. You can choose it without really having to repent or even really having to commit because the way to God will change to accommodate you. All the while, these people will still promise God's favor, will still promise eternal life. This is what the false prophets did even in the Old Testament. God's true prophets were regularly rejected because they were all doom and gloom. They told God's people that faithfulness required a narrow and hard road. So naturally, other men rose up and said, no, 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 God wants you to be happy. He wants the way to be easy. And wicked kings very regularly sided with these false prophets and their promises of good times, and they ostracized and persecuted the men who faithfully preached God's word. The Pharisees were a new brand of the same problem. They had different passions, different priorities. The way of the world is wide, but they still tried to widen God's narrow way into something that glorified men that allowed them to be enslaved to their particular passions and pleasures. Even while they assured Jesus that they were standing with the true prophets, that they were speaking for God. Jesus knows that for his new covenant people, this pattern will continue. Men and women will look at the narrow, hard road to life. Even with the good spiritual gifts, God promises on it, and they will reject it. But still desiring God's approval still wanting to have a claim to eternal life, still feeling like they deserve that, they will seek a wider, easier version of the road to life with the kind of gifts that they want along the road. That's why even here in, in this Sermon on the Mount, this first sermon in which Jesus declares his kingdom, he is already preparing us for the coming of these false prophets and teachers. Our second point this morning is this. Beware of false prophets who would confuse these two ways. 
This is going to sound a little bit like the X-Files. But the first thing that we must remember when we hear this warning from Jesus is that false teachers do exist and they are among us. We cannot close our eyes and say that they are not in our churches. False teachers have existed since the snake in the garden, and they truly did appear as soon as God's new covenant people began to gather. Paul warns Timothy in 2 Timothy 4, 1-3, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accommodate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. Listen to how stern, serious, urgent... This exhortation is from Paul. Timothy, you have to preach the word. You cannot stop preaching it. You must not stop proclaiming it, making use of it, applying it in every way that you can. You must continue to persevere in this preaching. You must keep pointing people again and again to the truth, to the narrow gate. Help them stay upon the road. Continue to help them. Do not slacken. Why? Because many people will not be able to endure sound teaching. They will wander from it. They will utterly despise and reject it. And their ears will itch for someone who can come along and widen that way to God. Make it easier. Make it something that allows me to bring more of my baggage. And they, they will be desperate for it. So of course, wicked men and women, they will rise to the occasion. They're ready to satisfy people's hunger for false gospels. They're ready to blur the way to God with the way to this world. But no one can serve two masters. You will end up hating one of them. To blur the two ways is only to lose the true gospel entirely. You will end up rejecting God, either knowingly or by recreating an image of God after your own fashioning. This is the end of the message of every false prophet and teacher. We don't usually like talking about false teachers. It feels judgmental and rude to make these accusations. But it is in this same sermon where Jesus has condemned our anger and warned against judgmentalism that he also tells us we must beware of false teachers. Of course, the world will hate us for this work of identifying condemning false teachers. They will despise that we could hold up two people and say, this one is a Christian, this one is not a Christian. They would hate that because this is one of the ways that we will demonstrate and guard the narrowness of the road to life. The exclusivity of the gospel, which is the very thing that many of them desire to reject. So it will be a challenge in and of itself for us to continue to beware of and even to identify and condemn false teachers in the face of this world. Now, this is not something that we do with glee. This is not something that we do to gloat over wrong viewpoints or feel proud of being the ones who are right. 
If that's our motivation, then we will certainly fall prey to other false teachers who might satisfy our pride. They'll give us a pharisaical, super-righteous, man-glorifying gospel. No, our, our motivation is like Paul's, to protect ourselves and the flock of God. Because we want to hold to the true, sweet gospel. We want to quickly identify and reject anything that would draw us away from that perfect truth, from the salvation we have in Jesus, that would lead us to worship any idea of God other than the one that is true, other than our Father himself and Jesus the Savior. We want to persevere together along the narrow way. So we must beware of false teachers. We must be aware of them and watchful for them. Jesus says that they are deceptive. They are wolves in sheep's clothing. And that sheep's clothing can take on many forms. It might be orthodox theological language, a knowledge of many Bible verses, a reputation for a thriving ministry or certain good works. For some of us, that tempting sheep's clothing might be a cheery and non-judgmental disposition and tone. For others of us, that sheep's clothing might be a very righteous and condemning tone. While this sheep's clothing appears to set the person apart to us as a superior Christian, someone worth following, they will subtly start to blur the narrow way with the wide way. They might import worldly things into their gospel. They might add new burdens and teachings to the gospel. Or they might take truths out of the gospel. They might do both. And if our ears are itching for this teaching, we're going to keep our eyes on that sheepskin, even as it starts wearing thin, as tufts of wolf hair start to pop out, because that teaching will flatter us. It will give us those things that we were really longing for. It will fill up our hearts with pride and satisfaction. This is good for me. While we are being led off the right path like lambs into the wolf's den. So hear Jesus' exhortation to recognize these false prophets. He says we can recognize them by their fruit. Eventually their fruit will reveal the kind of tree that they are. Two trees might be hard to tell apart. If you're not a botanist, you may have to wait until the fruit comes out to really know what kind of tree you're dealing with. Jesus tells us to carefully watch for the fruit of our teachers. Eventually, they will not be able to hide the type of tree they are. They will not be able to yield deceptive fruit all the while. So we must ask, do those who are teaching us produce the healthy fruit of people of God's kingdom? Or do they produce the diseased fruit, which shows that they were never a good tree? There are three areas where we can examine the fruit of a teacher that I want to think about this morning. The teaching itself, their actions, and then their followers. First, their teaching. Does it include many new words and concepts which God does not use in his word? Do they have their own language and framework or even extra marks of righteousness that people will depend on their teaching rather than God's word? Or is there any compromise in their teaching 
that maybe ignores, explains away, or of course outrightly denies something that God's word makes clear. None of us have perfect doctrine, this side of glory. We are imperfect people. And Paul's prayer is often that we grow in our wisdom and knowledge of the truth. But God's word gives us clear truths, which are so deeply connected to the gospel. And there are truths there which a false teacher will desire to deny. They might want to say that something which God says is sinful is in fact permissible. They may want to deny aspects of the gospel that this world commonly rejects, such as sinfulness of humanity or wrath of God. They may want to widen the way to life to include ways other than the gospel. They may want to add new requirements. They may change the gospel itself. This will start in hints or in what they do not say before the fruit is fully produced and ripened and it becomes clear. A false teacher can also be exposed by the fruit of their actions. Often they will widen the narrow way to accommodate their own vices. It may become clear that their teaching is for them a means of getting worldly treasure and benefits. Are they enjoying the wealth and influence of their ministry so much that their message is pointed more towards increasing that influence? Do they stop preaching against sin or shift their condemnation onto some sins more than others because they are protecting the areas of their life that run counter to God's righteousness? Are they saying God wants you to have certain things that Scripture says are unhelpful or sinful because they themselves clearly idolize those things? The last kind of fruit we can watch for is the fruit of their followers. Consider the lives of those who have been under their influence. Do those who follow them seek and love the narrow way to life, or are they consumed with other priorities and delights? Do they love the gospel itself? Do they love Jesus himself and their relationship with the Father? Or is the Christianity that they love dependent upon the particular brand and teaching of their favorite teacher? Mark Dever once said that he always sees himself as pastoring his church for the next guy. He's helping his church to depend on Christ and the gospel, not on him. False teachers often make themselves indispensable to their followers. Their followers will depend upon their unique style of discipleship, their unique ideas in their teaching. This uniqueness itself is often proof that a teacher is deviating from the faith once for all delivered to the saints. I want to carefully and gravely point out for you three men who have repeatedly shown by their fruit that they are false teachers. In these clear examples, we can consider how a false teacher is exposed and identified. Joel Osteen, the pastor of Lakewood Church, is a part of the Word of Faith movement that says that being made in God's image means that we have the creative power to speak things into existence, usually success or beauty or youth. Rob Bell is a progressive that argues against the exclusivity of the gospel, that Christian dogmatism is wicked Bill Johnson, the senior leader of Bethel Church and Ministries, claims to be a part of a new group of apostles starting a new age for the church. These men teach different things 
To be aware of one does not necessarily prepare us for the others. So in each case, we must examine their fruit. We can look at each one's teaching. Each one clearly abuses scripture in a different way. Joel Osteen claims to love it, but in his sermons it is used sparsely, and he depends upon his followers being ignorant of it and wanting things that are not found in it. Rob Bell claims that the word is not inspired or inerrant. We should read it more like poetry. Bill Johnson claims to have new revelation from the Spirit, which adds to it. So in different ways, each teacher has broadened the way beyond what God's Word teaches. We can also look at their actions to see rotten fruit. In each case, their message has supported the things that they themselves idolize. Joel Osteen preaches that God wants you to be successful and wealthy, because it's not hard to see that that's what Joel Osteen wants to be. He seeks out influential people, even secular celebrities. He often puts them before his church because they are influencers in this worldly culture. Rob Bell teaches that there is no dogmatic way to God because he desires to sell his books to a wider audience than Orthodox Christians. He left his church to do speaking tours. You can now pay to go see Rob Bell preach in a concert hall. The novelty and excitement around Bill Johnson's new movement has led to mass consumption of his church's music, which has grown other aspects of their ministry like book sales and now a church school that teaches novel spiritual techniques that you will not find anywhere else, certainly not in scripture. And we lastly see a pattern in their followers. Their followers will hold to different things. They will love different things. They will condemn different things. But in each case, their faith more and more depends upon the brand of Christianity taught by these men and the few people like them. Each of these three teachers is a prolific author so that you can more and more depend on their specific paradigm presented through their unique lens. And more and more, each one fosters a brand of Christianity that is becoming more and more different and isolated from the truth, once for all delivered to the saints. These men are clear false teachers. They are clearly disinterested in the biblical gospel. Whether they outright deny it or not, it is not what they preach, it's not what you come to them looking for, and it is not what those who follow them are encouraged to put their hope in. Now we can use these clear examples to help us consider the more subtle cases. Not just famous teachers with large ministries, but teachers in our own church. Men and women leading Bible studies or discipling people over coffee. God's word prepares us for false teachers appearing in our own churches. Do you know of a teacher, either a well-known teacher who's influencing you or someone that you know, or someone in your own acquaintance who is starting to show fruit that worries you? Have they started to widen or change their picture of the gospel to accommodate aspects which don't appear in scripture? 
are they using to their teaching to explain away certain behaviors, their quirks that scripture tells us are sinful. This is why they have a temper or live a lavish lifestyle or don't love people very well. Are they perhaps even claiming to trust the true gospel, but keeping their focus somewhere else? No, no, we should be talking more about this. I want to talk more about this. This is where everybody else is wrong and missing the mark. This high standard of righteousness, this important point for lifestyle, these teachings that emphasize certain points we find rarely or not at all in Scripture. Are they starting to sound novel? Like they are presenting their own unique perspective on Christianity. And do they want those who they influence to be more devoted to Jesus than them? Are they desperate that their teaching bring glory to our Father in heaven? Or do they even want just a little bit of that glory to go to them? the indispensable teacher. One day, diseased trees will be burned. The false teachers will go into the destruction, which is the end of the way of the world that they were truly walking on all the while. And so many sheep with itching ears will follow them into the fire. We must take this warning seriously. Do not be content to listen to teachers that are shifting your focus off of the truth. They are on the road to hell and they want to take you with them. Jesus does not want us to be suspicious. He wants us to be discerning. He wants us to cling so tightly to the true gospel, to grow in our knowledge and love of it so that we would never want to be moved off of it even an inch He wants us to make use of the gifts that God has given us along the narrow way to keep us on that way. The wiser that we are in the word, this gift of God, the more we are able to see and expose bad fruit. This is why Paul's exhortation to Timothy in light of the coming false teaching was to preach, to apply the word in every situation. Start with the pastoral epistles themselves, the books to Timothy and Titus. These are wonderful places for every believer to go to learn what God desires his teachers be and do, to learn what he wants his church to be and do. Those books are given to all of us. They are a good starting rubric by which you can examine the fruit of your teachers. And a good teacher will want to be held up to the standard of that truth. They will want to grow according to the standard of that truth. So you need the word. You also need the church. It is a gift so that we all together can be built up in the truth. All of us have personal biases, lapses in judgment. We all have particular temptations that we are given to. And we together can protect each other from our various weaknesses and blind spots without the church Paul says we are like children tossed about by every wind of doctrine enslaved to whatever our flesh wants to hear none of us is wise enough to hold to the truth apart from God's people friends we must recognize how our own hearts could be tempted to receive a false gospel which will draw us 
onto the wide way to destruction. We must see what wicked changes to the gospel we ourselves might desire. Even the rotten fruit that we might ignore. Some of us would happily eat thorns and thistles and pretend we are eating grapes and figs because that false gospel is just too important to us. It's too sweet to us. It allows us to have what we want. We're content to be drawn away from God's church. I just can't be with those people. We can be content to draw away from his word. It just doesn't fill me up the way that I need to be. We're so enjoying these other things, these other ideas, these other emphases, the things that we think are good. Our ears are itching for something different, something more. We want to walk in the wide way while we still comfort ourselves comfort our consciences by saying that we are still in God's favor on the road to life. In the passage that we'll consider next week, Jesus will seriously warn us that there are many people on the road to destruction who believe that they are on the road to life. So friend, if you are eager for teachers who are giving you a gospel that is feeding your flesh while promising you that you are in God's favor, run from them. Do not waste any more time in ignorance and deception. Hear the true gospel, know it, love it, and see that it is the only way to eternal life. Jesus Christ loved us so much that he died to take the punishment even of our hypocrisy on the cross. He invites you to enter through his gospel on the road that leads to eternal life with God the Father. Reject the diverse pleasures of this world and the cheap promises of false teachers. They are so much less wonderful than the gifts God gives, even in this life. Join God's people on the narrow way. And then, brothers and sisters, let me encourage you as you walk on that road. It will not always be easy. Jesus says that. And there will be false teachers and false gospels tempting you to give in, telling you that the road has to be easy. They'll promise that a little bit of compromise will lighten the load, drawing you back towards some of those things that the world is enjoying on its way to destruction. Do not listen to those temptations. They are drawing you to hell. Set your eyes on Christ. Grow in your discernment as a part of his church through his word to love the gospel, to love him alone as your only hope. And do not let anything draw you away from that road that leads to the great eternal treasures of the kingdom of heaven. It can be a hard road, but it's a sweet road. It's so much better than the greatest indulgences that this world is telling us to give into. And we follow Jesus on that road. He walked it before us. He walked to the cross with a joy set before him of glory. He persevered through great suffering so that we might be saved as God's children, not just by beginning in faith, but by persevering in faith. And he gives us sweet gifts for our perseverance. He himself is a sweet gift to us. He is with us on the road. 
he's our comfort, promising us that even in our suffering, his yoke is easy and his burden is light. Because we have the compassion and the comfort of our Savior. We have a good Father in heaven. And we have his wonderful Holy Spirit who equips us with everything we need to arrive safely in glory. All those who he justified, he glorified. So as we have the joy of Jesus Christ on this road, we have our hope. We have our eyes set on the promised eternal rest at the end when we will hear our Savior say, Come you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that we would all earnestly desire the inheritance of your kingdom. Father, it is a, a sad thing to speak of wolves in the church. It is a subject that many of us would like to ignore. Father, may we be aware that wolves are among your sheep. May we be watchful for them. Not for the joy of setting ourselves up as 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 people who are right, becoming false teachers in our own right, in our pride, Father, so that we can see your sheep protected from wolves. I pray, Father, that if there is anyone here who is listening to the teaching of someone who would lead them off the gospel and make them dependent on their own particular brand of Christianity, Father, may you expose that bad fruit to them that they might run from the wolves and run to you. And Father, may you guard and protect your people from every wolf and temptation and danger. May we see the folly of the wide way of the world. May we run from it. And may we persevere by your good gifts on the road to life, even when it is hard. And Father, put before our eyes always the hope we have in Jesus. May those promises be sweet to us, good to us. May they rest in our faith in the gospel. May Jesus come soon, we pray. Amen.